When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, are all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will see dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, and as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call.
With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are we doing? I'm going to slide this over real quick. Ah. All right. Hey, good to see you all. Welcome. My name is Vince. As Nick said, I'm a pastoral fellow here at High Point. I've been living in Madison for four weeks now and working at the church during that time, and it has been a blast already. So thank you so much for being here, and it's truly an honor to be giving the message this morning. This Sunday we are looking again at Acts chapter 2, which if you were here last week is the same chapter we looked at last week. Uh, last week Nick looked at it in terms of what it can teach us about the Holy Spirit and the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. This week we are looking at the same chapter in terms of what it can teach us about evangelism and our role in bringing people who are far from God into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you are not a Christian, raise your hand. I'm just kidding. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there is a good chance that you might be offended by some of the things that we say today because it's incredibly politically incorrect to try to push your worldview onto somebody else. And everyone in our culture is trying so hard to get along and encourage each other. And whatever you believe, whatever you believe is fine, is totally fine. And Christians have to keep standing up and saying, nope, everyone has to believe what we believe. And that gets frustrating, so you might be offended. Here are three reasons why I hope you're not offended, or even if you are, that you might understand why we're talking about this today. One, as Christians, we believe there is a real God and that we can really have a relationship with that God, and we love our relationship with God. We love the peace and the joy and the fullness that that brings, and evangelism at its best has nothing to do with guilt, it has nothing to do with insecurity, and it has everything to do with wanting other people to understand and to experience the beauty of what it means to have a relationship with God. Two, we believe there are actual places called heaven and hell that are real, that last forever. And we believe that where you end up depends on your willingness to accept Jesus for who he said that he was. We believe that's an actual thing. And we believe that we would be incredibly cruel people if we did not spend some time talking about how can we help people end up in a place of eternal bliss rather than eternal punishment. I know this is a little intense for 9 a.m., but this is what we believe, okay? So that's why we're talking about it. And lastly, we try to just talk about what the Bible talks about. And in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people change their worldview and accept Christianity. So to be faithful to the Bible, that's what we're going to talk about. So if you're here today, at least you know now why we are talking about these things. The question that we're going to try to answer today is how are people really converted? Conversion is kind of an ugly word, 
But this is what we're talking about. How is it that people who are philosophically and intellectually opposed to Christianity, not just people who grew up in church and walked away for a little bit, or walked away for a little bit, but then ended up coming back and saying, okay, I've always known this is true, but how do people who are actually opposed to Christianity, which is a whole lot of people in Madison, end up changing their mind and saying, no, actually I was wrong, this is what I believe in. And this is an important question for all of us, or it should be an important question for all of us. We all have the sense that we should be telling stories. Hey, my friend, I never thought he would become a Christian. I never thought he'd get there. I never thought he'd cross over the line. But guess what? Next Sunday, he's getting baptized. These are the stories that we want to be telling. And we wish we could be telling more of. And we're baptizing all these people who all weren't Christians before, not just kids who grew up in the church, not just lazy people who never got around to it, but people who previously were opposed to Christianity. And if there's something in you that has said, why aren't we hearing more about this, that's a good thing. Because that is part of what it means to be a church, is that we are bringing people who are far from God into a relationship with God. Now, some of you might say, well, isn't High Point growing, though? I mean, we're a growing church, so these things are happening, right? And me and Nick talked a good bit about this um, before I came up here. I was like, tell me about the church. Is it growing? How is that going? And yes, High Point is growing, and that's a good thing, because many churches in the country are declining and dying and closing their doors. So the fact that High Point is growing is a good thing, but there are different kinds of growth. People move to Madison who are already Christians, right? And they, they go to Blackhawk and they go to City Church and they go to the churches in the area and whichever church they pick to go to grows a little bit. You know what I'm saying? There are also people leaving churches in Madison who are currently involved in a church. They say, I don't like this church anymore. Sometimes it's a good reason that they leave. Sometimes it's a not so good reason that they leave. But when they come to High Point, High Point grows a little bit. Churches grow when people have kids, they are a little more likely to stay Christians than if they go to the same church that their parents went to. The church grows a little bit. And like I said, these are all good things. None of this is say anything bad about this kind of growth. But here's the thing. We can do a lot of good. We have a lot of effectiveness in bringing Christian people into the church on our own power. If you do kids' ministry a little bit better, if you have a little bit cooler worship music, if your pastor is a little more confident and a little more whatever, you can bring Christian people into the church on your own power. And then everyone says, man, we've got such a great church. And that's not a bad thing. But when you have people coming to the church who were opposed to Christianity and something happens in them and God does something in their heart and they change their mind and they start coming to church, people stop saying, we've got such a great church and they start saying, we've got such a great God. Amen? That's what we want to see happen. We don't want to see people saying, wow, High Point is such a great church. We want people to say, wow, the Christian God is a great God because he's changing lives all around this area and all around this city. So how does this happen? How do we do this? This is what we're called to do. So we're going to be looking at this in Acts chapter 2. And here's the big idea of this morning. Everything we're going to be talking about is filtered through this next sentence that I'm going to say to you. And it's so obvious that some of you are going to be like, yeah, 
obviously what's next, but this is so easy to miss and we forget this. God saves people through people. You can write that down. You can take a picture with your phone. God saves people through people. That should be the next slide, Megan. Yep, perfect. God saves people through people. It is a work of God, but he does it through us. He has chosen in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty. Sometimes I question God on this one, but he has chosen to save people through people. That is a great Burden. It is a great task. It is a great responsibility, but it's also a great privilege and a great joy, and it's something that we have no choice about. If you're a doctor, which I know some of you here are doctors, you know how this is. You can't get out of being a doctor. It's not something you clock in and clock out of. If you're on a plane and the pilot gets on the microphone and says, is there a doctor on the plane? You can hunker down and you can go like this and look the other way, but you are still a doctor. You still are the person who has the power to help someone who is in need. When Jesus said, you are the light of the world, he didn't say, you should be the light of the world. He didn't say, you should act like the world. He said, no, because you're there and you're listening to me talk, you are now the light of the world. You are my plan for reaching people. And we are the physicians in a world that is spiritually sick and spiritually dying. We are God's plan for bringing people to him. We cannot forget that. So how does it work? This passage and the book of Acts and all of history and your own experience reveals that there are three ingredients to this happening. God saves people through people, and there are always these three ingredients, these three components at work that we're going to look at one at a time. And the first one is this. It's the power of God. God saves people through people. And every time he does, it starts out with a manifestation of the power of God in a visible way so that non-Christians are drawn to want to know more about what is going on in the Christian community. Take a look at verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. This is right after Pentecost. Tongues of fire coming down on the group of brand new Christians. They start speaking in languages that they did not know before. And this is how the people react. This is how the crowd reacts. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? This is such an interesting miracle. It's such an interesting way that God chooses to show his power first. To be a Galilean, meant that you had a certain accent. And this accent was actually associated with being less educated. It would be similar to the way that people have a stereotype about people who come from the rural south. Now that's a stereotype, it's not true, but when someone, you know, if I were to get up here and say, hey y'all, welcome, we're glad you're here today. There are people in the north who associate that with being less educated. It's not true, but that's just what people think. It was the same way for the Galileans. So it would be like if someone got up here and said, hey everybody, welcome to High Point, and then started speaking like impeccable Japanese with all the accents and all the inflections, perfect. It's bizarre. I don't know why this was the first miracle. I mean, there's reasons like Nick talked about last week, but it's just an interesting thing. Look how, look what happens next. Verse 8, how is it that each of us hears them 
in our native language, and then verse 12, skipping down a little bit, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And that's the critical part, the fact that they asked a question. What does this mean? They were drawn to the power of God because there was something different about it. We would like to remove this part from the equation because this means that it's not all about our argumentative ability or our persuasion or our willingness to confront people. We have to say, yep, God has to do something supernatural. The same thing that was true at the time is true for us today. I have a friend named David who, uh, not a Christian, we had a whole lot of evangelistic conversations. I built the relationship up. I told him what I believed. I gave him all the historical arguments. I told him about what God had done in my life. And it got to the point where he was like, all right, I understand that. And it makes sense. And I can't out argue you. And I'm not even sure I disagree with you. But I have not experienced God. I have not seen him work and so I can't accept what you're saying. And I think he is representative of a lot of people in our culture. They don't care about the proof. They don't care about the arguments. They don't care about apologetics. And ultimately, I think most of the time, they don't even really care about your story. They don't care what God has done in your life. They're like, that's great for you. They want to see something real and tangible and touchable and moving they want to see God work. That is the thing that will convince them to say, what does this mean? I want to know more. So let me ask you, how is the Holy Spirit, how is the power of God made manifest in your life? Or how might God want to manifest his power in your life? Let me say, we cannot rule out the overtly supernatural even though you may never have participated in a miracle or something like that, God is still doing these things. He's still healing people. He's still speaking in supernatural ways. All of this is still going on, and there are some of you here who have participated in things like that, and you cannot think that that may not be something God wants to do through you, that he may want to leverage those more overtly supernatural gifts as evangelistic tools. And there might be some of you here that are gifted in those ways, and you just haven't ever tried it. You haven't experienced it, and God may want to lead you into doing more of those things. As well, though, it is very easy for us as Christians to become desensitized to the more covert supernatural things that God is doing in our lives. And we lose track of the fact that God has done things in our lives that outsiders will register as supernatural even after we forget that they are. Let me tell you what I mean. If you and your spouse still sleep in the same bed, if you still sleep in the same room, if you're still friends because the Holy Spirit has done something supernatural to keep your marriage together against the odds, even though you feel like, yeah, God just kind of kicked our butts and he kept us together and here we are, we're still doing it. When a non-Christian comes and sees your marriage and looks at you too and goes, 
I don't really get why you guys are still together. But you are, and you really do love each other. And I can tell the love between you is something that is supernatural. How is that happening? Because they're not around the Holy Spirit all the time. They're not used to seeing the Holy Spirit work in relationships. And if they're married, that is not a part of their marriage. And they will recognize it as supernatural, even though you don't anymore. If you are raising children to follow the Lord and, they're, and it's working and they're growing up and they love God and they love each other and they love you, you may find that when you invite non-Christians into your home, they may say things like, there's so much peace here and there's so much joy here and there's so much love here. What is going on? And you're like, I don't know. We just love each other. This is just how we do life. But because they are not around households where Jesus is Lord and the Holy Spirit is working in that household, they will recognize that there is something supernatural going on in your house. If you have friends that you cry to on the phone, that you call and you talk and they speak the truth and love to you and you lift each other up, it's just the body of Christ doing what the body of Christ always does. But someone from the outside who has no close friendships and their few relationships are mostly negative and they rip each other down. When they start to see friendships like that, they start to say this, what does this mean? How is this happening? Why is this happening? The other night, me and Tony and Lisa Dolliger played a board game called Settlers of Catan, which is just like a nerdy board game that some young people play. And we're sitting there at like 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night having a blast and there was not a drop of alcohol involved. And I remember sitting there thinking, there are people I know that I think if they were in this room tonight, they might accept Christ. Because all of their free time, all of their recreation is so self-destructive and so unhealthy that for them to see three people in their 20s who are supporting each other and loving each other in those ways might be enough that they would say, what does this mean? Look, for some of you, maybe God's power isn't working in you right now. Maybe as I'm saying these things, you're like, my marriage is a mess, my kids are a mess, my house is actually messy. Like, if I had a non-Christian come into this mess, they would be like, I don't want any part of that. And that might be the case for some of you. And if that's you, maybe that's why you're here this morning. Is because you need to hear, look, let the Holy Spirit reign. Let him take control. Get whatever support you need. Let your story be a story of redemption and change. And don't worry about this evangelism thing maybe at the moment. Just worry about giving your life over to God. And the day will come when God is manifested in power in your life. And it is time to let some non-Christians in. But I am thinking there are a lot of you that have the power of God in you and God is doing things and you've grown desensitized to it. God saves people through people. It starts with the power of God in your life. The next piece that we're often missing is this one of proximity. Proximity to non-believers. We're going to talk a little more about this one at the end, but let me say a few things right now. Take a look at verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6. We're skipping back a little bit. 
This part is so obvious, it's like you almost don't even need to say it, but it's important because it doesn't always happen. This is right after Pentecost, right? Same, same moment in the story. Before they've asked those questions, it says, when they heard the sound of all the people speaking these other languages, when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Look at those first five words again. When they heard the sound. Can you imagine if Pentecost took place in some isolated mountain somewhere, far away from civilization. All of this would have happened, and that would have been it. It wouldn't have gone anywhere. 3,000 people would not have come to Christ that day. The thing that made the difference is that God's power showed up in close proximity to non-believers, close enough that they could hear what was going on. Now, granted, the Christians did not orchestrate this. They did not say, hey, where should we camp out as we wait for the Holy Spirit? Let's make sure it's close enough to non-Christians so that just in case tongues of fire come down and something crazy happens, they'll be able to hear what's going on. God orchestrated this. But as Acts goes on, this ingredient stays in the mix and it becomes something that the Christian church builds in intentionally. And they start pursuing non-Christians. They start intentionally going in to close proximity with non-believers. This is so huge. It's so important and it's so easy to miss. And I'm experiencing it right now. Because I showed up at High Point and I didn't know anyone in Madison except Nick. And I've met so many great people. And they're so supportive and so encouraging and so loving. And it would be incredibly easy for me to build a network of friendships and relationships here of just high point people. And all my needs would be met. And that's so many of your stories as well. You came to high point. You got plugged in. You started going to a small group. You started serving. You started engaging in some volunteering things after the church. You started going to Sunday school. Your kids are going to the school now. You're, they're in, you know, you're just totally enveloped in the Christian culture. And that's a good thing. We are supposed to be loving each other. We're supposed to be building community. But it is incredibly easy, before you know it, that you only know Christians. And God starts doing things in your life. And he's actually doing things in your life, but there's no non-Christians there to see it. This proximity thing is a huge issue, especially in really healthy discipleship-oriented churches like High Point. This is the one we often miss. We're going to talk a little more about this in a minute. God saves people through people. It starts with a manifestation of the power of God brought into close proximity with non-believers. And the last ingredient is this, a proclamation of the gospel. Yes, all these words start with the letter P. Yes, that may feel like an insult to your intelligence. This is just the way our minds work. It's helpful to remember things. Power, proximity, proclamation. Power, proximity, proclamation. Those are the three elements of what it looks like to be used by God to bring people into relationship with him. This last one might seem obvious, but it is not always the case. I see this a lot of the times in um, I don't know what you'd call them. Maybe like a missional small group. Missional covers a whole lot of different things, so I don't want to throw everything into this 
under this umbrella. But, you know, I've seen small groups where they get a whole bunch of Christians and a whole bunch of non-Christians. They put them together and they eat food together and they listen to each other's stories and they encourage each other. And the non-Christian people feel genuinely loved and cared for in those places. But then that's it. And sometimes they even take them to church, but that's it. And they never even realize what is different. Because the gospel is never actually shared clearly with them. So we need to make sure that this is happening. Now, all, most of you, not all of you, but most of you could explain the gospel clearly. Some of you who work in kids' ministry can explain the gospel to a child, which is actually really hard, and you probably could explain it better than I could. But there are two aspects to the gospel presentations throughout Acts that are key for making specifically evangelistic presentations of the gospel. So I want to just walk through those really quick. The right out of the text. When we are proclaiming the gospel, there needs to be an accusation and an invitation. You can just leave that one up there. The accusation looks like this. In this story, in this particular sermon, it looks like this. But this happens all throughout Acts. Verse 12. The crowd says this. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? That should be the next slide. Yep. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And then watch what happens. Then Peter stood up. Next one. Yep. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. It's not enough for them just to see something miraculous and be interested. He doesn't say, hey, just come hang out with us for a long time and we'll worry about it later. He says, let me explain this to you. Then verse 23, skipping down. We're not going to go through the whole sermon because uh, Nick covered a lot of it last week. We're just going to focus on the accusation and the invitation. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It's pretty strong. You put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Then skipping down to verse 36. At the end of the sermon, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's pretty direct about it. They've seen the power of God. They've come. They're interested. And he says, guess what? You crucified Jesus. Now, we don't make the same accusation today when we're sharing the gospel. In some sense, all of our sin is the reason why Jesus was crucified. So you could maybe argue that you could say something like this, like it's your fault that Jesus was crucified, but we wouldn't mean that in the same way that Peter means it when he says it to the crowd. But there is a similarity in the accusation, and that's that Peter was saying, you are wrong about Jesus. You are wrong about Jesus, and we have to say this. We have to say at some point, I know you like Jesus. I know you think he was a good man and a good teacher and a good person and a real historical figure, but guess what? Jesus was also God. 
He came to this planet. He died on the cross. He rose again. He conquered death. He is Lord of all the earth. Someday every knee is going to bow to him. And if you want to know what's going on in this community, if you want to know what's going on in my life, this is what's behind it. Jesus, the real Jesus, and you are wrong about Jesus. We have to be able to say this. That's the first half. The second half is the invitation. Look at verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. He invites them into something. He doesn't just tell them they're wrong. He says, and I want you to do something. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the promise is for you. Still, even now, despite all that you've done, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then verse 40, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It is not enough to just say, This is what I believe. Sooner or later, after you've built the relationship, you have to say, this matters, and you need to do something about it. Some of you have a person like this in your life, a non-Christian person, and you've been praying, and you're like, Lord, will you just give me a sign for when it's the right time to bring up the gospel? And could you make the sign, that person coming to me and saying, hey, can you tell me how to have a relationship with Jesus? That would be a good sign. Okay, let's go with that one. So when they come and ask me, that's when I'll tell them. No, do not wait for that sign. You'll be waiting a long time. If there is a person in your life who is not a Christian that you have a relationship with, you don't need to wait for a sign. You can say, hey, this has really been bothering me because I believe this thing and I believe it's the most important thing and I think you need to believe it too and I think there's a lot at stake here. And you just start begging and pleading. You say, listen, let's talk about this. Because of Westboro Baptist and because of street preachers and because there was a time when people were banging each other over the heads with Bibles, the pendulum has swung too far the other way. So now we say, okay, I'm just going to be so careful and I'm going to be so nice and I'm just going to wait until they're begging for the answer. You can offend people. You can frustrate people. If someone pushes back and there's resistance, that does not mean you did something wrong. And it doesn't even mean that's the last time you should bring it up. Yes, you have to use wisdom. Yes, we don't want to swing too far back the other way. But it is okay to proclaim the gospel to a non-Christian that you have a relationship with. You don't need to wait forever. This is what we're talking about, right? God saves people through people. These are the three things. The power of God comes in a Christian community or in a Christian individual. Makes, and the power is made apparent. And people are in close proximity, are brought into close proximity. They start asking questions. And then the gospel is proclaimed clearly with an accusation and an invitation every single time. So let me ask you. Where are you on these three? What ingredient are you missing? 
Or what ingredient could you grow in? For some of you, it might be that first one. That you need to give God control of your life. You need to let him work in you so that you become a person who is obviously filled with something different than the people around them. For some of you, it might be that last one, that you have a person that you can proclaim the gospel to and you are just waiting for the right time and it is time to stop waiting. But I have a guess and a hunch after being here for four weeks, so I might be wrong. I might be completely wrong, and if that's the case, that's fine, and I'll apologize later. But I would guess that if I were to ask people to raise their hands and say, how many of you do not have one close non-Christian friend, a whole lot of hands would go up. And I mean that in terms of someone who leans on you, a non-Christian who when they're in trouble, you're the first person they call. And you spend time with them consistently. And you have them over to your house. And you go out to coffee with them. And they are woven into the fabric of your life. I bet if I asked you to raise your hand and said, how many of you have no one like that in your life? A whole lot of hands would go up. This is the problem in many, many churches. That there is no proximity. So if that is you, look, building evangelism into your life, that's stressful. That's overwhelming. We are all so busy doing a million different things. If I said, you need to go out and share the gospel with a bunch of people, no one will do it because that's overwhelming. But you can build one person into your life. You can say, I'm going to build a relationship with one non-Christian person. I'm going to let them in. I'm going to spend time with them. I'm not going to add them into my schedule. I'm just going to envelop them in it. I'm just going to say, hey, just come over for dinner. We're already having dinner. Come on over. I'm going to say, hey, come to this thing with me. I'm already going to it. Don't add them in. Just bring them into your community. Bring them into your life and see what God does. If everyone in this room did that, we would have people coming to Christ. We would be baptizing people who are opposed to Christianity, but who have seen the power of God work in all your lives, and they get on board with it. Now, some of you might be thinking, all right, new guy, Mr. Spiky hair, new guy, who's probably younger than some of my kids. I hear what you're saying, but are you doing this? Are you going out and doing this? And let me say, if what I'm saying is from the Bible, it doesn't matter whether I'm doing it or not. You still got to do it. (laughs) But I would like to disclose what this has looked like for me. And I'm not the example. And it might be encouragement. It might be a frustration. I don't know. But here's my story. So in the last, I worked at a church before this for three years. And during that time, I led one person to Christ in that time. One person who would have said, I do not believe this and now still says, I'm a Christian, I believe this, whose life was changed. And some of you might say, wow, you've actually done that. That's really good. I've never led anyone to Christ, and none of my friends really have either, so I guess you're pretty legit. And some of you might be thinking, you're doing full-time ministry, and you've led one person to Christ? You're a joke. I don't know. I don't know whether I'm a joke or I'm an example, whatever. But here's what I do know. That was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And when I look back on that church, 
And I think of all the things I did, and I think God used me to do some things there, hopefully, but that one stands out by far. There was nothing like it. There was nothing like it. And it took more work than I thought it would. And it was more exhausting than I thought it would be. But there was, it was incredible. And once you do it once, it's like you just want to keep doing it. You want to keep experiencing it. Because I know that one day I'm going to get to heaven and that person is going to be there. And I'm going to say, hey, you know, we made it. And you're here now because of what happened when I was at that church. And, you know, things were happening. And that's what we want for each one of you. We want you to be able to experience that and be able to look someone in the eyes and say, God, use me to bring this person into his kingdom for all eternity, forever. That's how High Point is going to baptize 3,000 people. Maybe not in one day. Maybe not over five years, maybe over 10 years, maybe over 15 years, however long. But that's how it's going to happen is when each of us say, I am going to go after one person. I'm going to build that relationship. I want to make it happen. I want to say one more thing, then we're going to be done. Some of you have children, brothers, sisters who are not Christians who have walked away from God. And you pray for them constantly. And you ask your small group to pray for them constantly. And you know that oftentimes your prayer has been, Lord, would you please bring Christian people into my child's life or into my sibling's life so that they would remember what Christian community is like and they would be drawn back to God through that group of people. How often have you prayed that for your own relative or for one of your friends? But have you been that person for somebody else? Have you been a community of people that could be the answer to someone else's prayer? There's a lot of Christians in this country and there's a lot of non-Christians everywhere being prayed for by Christian people. And we have the opportunity to be the answer to someone else's prayer. And how hypocritical of us to pray that for someone that we love so much but not be willing to be that for somebody else. You all know what I'm saying? And look, I'm starting from scratch. I don't know anyone here. So if you're starting from scratch today, let's start from scratch together. I need to meet people who are far from God. And if you do too, that's great. So let's ask God to move. I'm going to pray. And then... That'll be it. Lord, we do ask that you would move in power through this community of people. God, there are so many people here who love you so deeply and so dearly and who so want to honor you in everything they do. But this idea of actually building relationships with people far from you is overwhelming and scary and seems like it's destined for failure and there's no one to look left and right to and see people who are doing the same thing. Lord, I ask that you would build a culture of evangelism in this church. That people would see their friends doing it and then would be moved to do it as well. Lord, give people the strength to start building a relationship with just one person 
to work that person into the fabric of their life and to invite them into something that will change their life forever. God, we know that only you can do it. It will only be through your spirit. It will only be through your power. So help us to walk in dependence, but help us to be bold, knowing that you want this to happen, that you desire to bring people into your kingdom, that you desire that no one would perish. And God, we just submit all this to you. And we invite you here, Lord, and we sing to you now, worshiping you, in faith that you will do what you desire to do through us. In your name, amen.